Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. My name is Philip Harland. I'm a professor at York University in Toronto, and we're continuing on in the Paul and his Communities series of the podcast. In the previous episode, we began to look at the situation among the followers of Jesus at Corinth in Greece that led Paul to write what we now know as 1 Corinthians in the New Testament. In this episode, we continue on with analyzing that situation. In the previous episode, we dealt with chapters 1 to 5 primarily of 1 Corinthians. Now we move on to what chapters 6 to 15 reveal about what's going on among these Christians. There are divisions within the Christian community at Corinth, as we already know, and these divisions are further reflected in these chapters. These divisions, in some ways, are divisions based on social differences among the Christians we'll see today but also divisions based on spiritual differences. The way I put it is, Paul characterizes the problems in terms of people thinking they're socially superior to others, upper class Christians versus lower class Christians. In other respects, some are feeling they are spiritually superior to other Christians. So we'll see these divisions in their various ways in today's podcast. The next whole section, I've divided it up into two categories just to help you remember things. Namely, a lot of the other problems that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians have to do with what he considers people thinking they're socially superior to others. And some of the other problems have to do with people thinking they're religiously superior to others. Sometimes the two align. In other words, the people who think they're religiously superior sometimes are highly educated and may be wealthier people in society. So there's some convergence here. But most of the problems have to do with some of the members of the Jesus group looking down upon or, in Paul's view, mistreating other members of the Jesus groups. And this is further fleshing out those divisions that we saw already along household church lines, that there's even divisions beyond that that are going on. Uh, at Corinth. And so that's how I'll talk about these other issues. So let's deal with the first couple ones. In chapter 6, we have litigious Christians. Namely, Paul talks about the fact that some of the Christians at Corinth are going to court. Followers of Jesus going to court against followers of Jesus. We're talking about going to the Corinthian courts. The judicial system of Corinth is being used by followers of Jesus to take cases against other followers of Jesus. This is another piece of evidence that points directly to some upper-class Christians belonging to the Jesus groups at Corinth. It also aligns with the theory I had earlier that there are rivalries between wealthy figures that are Jesus followers at Corinth and that they're taking their rivalries out sometimes in court cases. Peter Garnsey is a historian of the Roman period who has dealt extensively with how courts work in the Roman Empire. And he deals with the question of how social status is to be understood in relation to court cases in Rome and in the cities of the Mediterranean world during the Roman period. And what he emphasizes is that the vast majority of cases done in courts would be wealthy people making cases against others. Similar to the modern world. It's the wealthy who are able to afford to go to the court. If you're poor, you're unlikely to be able to do anything, even if you've been totally wronged. That's still true today. In the Roman Empire, it was even more so. In fact, it was built into the system. Today, we have this fake talk 
as though it's all fair and everyone has equal access to legal protection. And we have the fake talk of equality. But in the Roman world, it wasn't fake talk of equality. It was just if you're an upper-class person and you show up in court, you have privilege. You're already likely to win a case if you're a wealthy person. So wealthy people are the more likely candidates for ta- making court cases. On top of that, there's two options. It's either a wealthy person taking a lower-class person. Uh, lower could be they're still wealthy, but they're slightly lower than them in the system, or lower in the sense of really low, but that's an option. Another very common case, though, is a wealthy person taking a peer to court, precisely in the arena of rivalry that we've been talking about where a person's trying to establish their own honor over against someone they perceive as on an equal basis with them by shaming the other person. And winning a court case can be a way of building up your own honor status within Corinthian society and of putting to shame someone who's your competitor within Corinthian society. So there's two options here, but either option points to the direction that it's upper-class people making the cases. The, the leader of the church that says, I belong to Paul, taking the leader of the church that says, I belong to Apollos to court as part of their rivalry within Corinthian society and as part of their rivalry within the Jesus group. Jump ahead to chapter 11 because this is another factor that relates to these, the social divisions that are going on within the community at Corinth. And that is when you get to chapter 11, verses 17 to 34, you have Paul talking about the gathering of the followers of Jesus for a meal, a meal that they call the Lord's Supper, that later gets known as the Thanksgiving meal, the Eucharist within Christianity. And so they have this meal together, and Paul talks about how it's a remembrance. This is a ritual that the early Christians have where they have a meal together, and they remember Jesus, and remember Jesus dying, and remember if it was raised from the dead. And so he talks about the practice of the Christians at Corinth in regard to their Lord's Supper. And he has nothing but bad stuff to say about it. Because what he says is, some people are getting drunk and stuffed, and others aren't getting any food. This is his characterization of the situation. A scholar named Gerd Tyson has done a lot on this whole social aspect of what's going on at Corinth here. And what he points out is that the best candidates for those who are not getting any food are the people who arrive late. The people who arrive late are the people without leisure time. The people who arrive late are the ones that are having to work. The people who arrive early are the people with leisure time, are the wealthier people. The people who arrive early are having plenty of wine to drink, so much so that there's no food left when the poorer members of the Jesus group arrive. So once again, we're seeing social divisions here within the Jesus group, where it's upper classes versus lower classes in terms of the problems that are occurring at Corinth. So we're seeing here, first of all, that there's quite a bit of difference between Corinth and Thessalonica. When Paul writes to Thessalonica, he has almost nothing to say but how wonderful they are. When Paul writes to the Christians at Corinth, he has almost nothing to say but how many problems there are. It's quite a contrast in that regard. And we've been going through some of what Paul sees as problems. And some of them relate, we've already seen, to social status issues and economic issues within the Jesus groups. Uh, And so we've seen just now the socially superior problem that Paul identifies. Now we're moving on to another thing. And that is the ones that Paul sees as claiming spiritual superiority. And he uses the word pneumatikoi, spiritual ones, to talk about the people at Corinth who are writing the letter to him. So it's a particular group within the followers of Jesus at Corinth who have written a letter to Paul. And chapters 7 to 15 are Paul somewhat systematically, but not completely systematically, going through some of the issues they raised in their letter. And we'll see that his answers are complicated. It's not always that he's saying, I totally disagree with you, do the opposite. 
It's often he's saying, okay, I know where you're coming from when you say this, but I think that's that and the other. It's qualifying quite often what they already believe. But in the process of looking at this, we're seeing what some of the Christians at Corinth believe. We're seeing a glimpse into Christian belief as represented in this particular group at Corinth. Let's look at these religiously superior Christians. So we're in the section in 1 Corinthians where it's addressing their letter. And the good thing is sometimes Paul almost seems to be quoting what they said. And then, after quoting them, doing his qualifications and saying what he thinks and agreeing with them in some ways and disagreeing with them in other ways. So look at chapter 7, which is the first occurrence of it, and we'll look through some of these and then try and get a glimpse into what do these, this group of Christians at Corinth think. Remember that they're not representative of all, of all followers of Jesus at Corinth. A particular group, we'll see, who think of themselves as spiritual ones, as of a higher status spiritually than other followers of Jesus. Chapter 7 begins, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. This next thing is sometimes put in quotes in translations, properly put in quotes. It seems that this next phrase is a quote from their letter to him. It is well for a man not to touch a woman. The Corinthians who wrote this letter to Paul believe that you should not engage in sexual activity at all. They're talking about should you be married at all? Or if you are married, should the spiritual one engage in sexual activity? Their answer is no. So some of the Christians at Corinth are refraining from sexual activity altogether as a means towards being more spiritual. Paul's answer isn't saying, I totally disagree with you, is it? It's a somewhat nuanced answer. It's, yes, I agree with you. However, there's all these different categories, and if someone's really burning with lust, well, don't worry about it. Let them get married. But we're, we're seeing, thankfully, through this interchange between their letter and him, some of the nuances of things, views, Paul's view on marriage. Namely, that he just doesn't think it's so great. It's better just to avoid it. When he says that, he gives a bit of context to why he thinks it is good not to touch a woman, as to why it's good to refrain from marriage. Did anyone notice the reason? It's because of his apocalyptic worldview. He says explicitly, Now concerning the unmarried, in this section in verse 25 of chapter 7, now concerning the unmarried, the virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give my opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Now he's going to reveal what has been in his mind all along. I think that in view of the present distress, it is well for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek marriage. But if you marry, you do not sin. And if a virgin marries, she does not sin. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. Back to the negative aspects of being distracted. But the thing I'm trying to point out to you is, in view of the present distress. What is the present distress? They're not feeling persecuted. The distress is the expectation that any minute the wrath of God is coming, and any minute God is going to intervene, any minute the Lord will be coming, and the end will be here. Paul urgently thinks that. That's part of why the Thessalonians back at Thessalonica were so also urgently thinking it was going to happen any moment. Paul thinks it's going to happen any moment. And here he's saying that his view about refraining from sexual activity is based in large part on his apocalyptic view. Chapter 8 goes on further with the letter that these other Christians wrote. And once again, we get more of the slogans or the terminology or the actual phrasing that some Christians at Corinth said and that reveals to us what they believe. Here in chapter 8, it deals with 
food offered to idols. What is food offered to idols? Well, it's food that has been sacrificed to Greek and Roman gods. We already know that's central to the whole religious system of the Mediterranean world, sacrifice. And the meat that had been sacrificed to gods could be resold in the marketplace. It could be encountered at a friend's house because it could have been bought at the marketplace. It could be encountered in all kinds of places. Obviously, it could be encountered in temples. If you go to the local temple, yes, but it can be encountered elsewhere. And so that's the issue here, food offered to idols. And this is what Paul begins with. Now concerning food offered to idols. So they raise the issue of food offered to idols. And it seems like he's going to quote them here. We know that all of us possess knowledge. All of us possess knowledge. That seems to be a slogan of the Christians who wrote their letter to Paul. This is beginning to already indicate something to you about their status. Say, I possess knowledge. This sounds like a guy who thinks they're educated, right? And thinks that they know what they're talking about and thinks they've got it all figured out. We're already seeing the bit of the social status thing that goes along with the, the spiritual superiority might be also that they're highly educated as well. We know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge, Paul says, puffs up. So he's countering their claim to knowledge by saying it puffs up. But love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know what he ought to know. Look at the next verse there, verse 4. Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. That seems to be an opinion held by the people that wrote. We possess knowledge. Our knowledge is that an idol has no existence and that there's no God but one. Very Jewish statement. What they're leading to, though, is therefore... It doesn't matter whether we consume food that has been sacrificed to the Greek and Roman gods. So they are feeling free, some of these Christians at Corinth, probably somewhat educated, probably somewhat upper class, feel that they can engage in eating food that's been previously sacrificed to idols. Well, a place you could encounter such food, including meat, is at your friend's house, who's not a follower of Jesus, who's also of your social status, who invites you over for dinner. So that's one social context that Paul mentions. If you're invited to a friend's house, yes, go. But Paul's whole answer is if someone says to you, wait a minute, that food's sacrificed to Zeus, then you should refrain from it. But otherwise, Paul's answer is you can consume it, it seems. But he's qualifying their idea of knowing that there's no other gods and therefore they can do whatever they want. There's been a whole debate, though, among scholars as to what Paul's view actually is. It's quite ambiguous. Sometimes it sounds like he's saying you shouldn't eat food sacrificed to idols at all. Sometimes it sounds like he's saying it's okay as long as you don't offend people who are upset about the whole idea. The thing that complicates it is in chapter 8, he's talking about somewhat agreeing with their idea. Yes, we all possess knowledge. Yes, there is no God but one. Yes, those gods don't exist to which this, this meat has supposedly been sacrificed. Yes, therefore, it seems to make sense that you can eat it. But then in chapter 10, he returns to the issue again. There's an interlude in chapter 9 where he goes on about his own apostleship, which we'll be dealing with in a tutorial later on. But in chapter 10, he returns to it again. And there he's more on the side of saying, talking about idolatry and warning against idolatry. So it almost sounds like he's now saying, don't eat at food sacrificed to idols. It's ambiguous. He's interpreting the Jewish scriptures and talking about the story of Moses and talking about stories where people worshipped other gods in the Hebrew Bible and were zapped dead because of it. And basically he's saying, watch out for idolatry. Watch out for worshipping gods other than the one God. And his whole chapter 10 is warning that. Therefore, my beloved, verse 14 of chapter 10, 
Shun the worship of idols. I speak as to sensible men. Judge for yourselves what I say. And then he concludes comparing the Lord's Supper to what he calls demons supper no i imply that the pagan sacrifice they offer to demons he says and not to god i do not want you to be partners with demons you cannot drink the cup of the lord he's talking about the lord's supper and the cup of demons you cannot partake of the table of the lord and the table of demons shall we provoke the lord to jealousy are we stronger than he here paul is expressing a typical judean view and that is gentiles are idolaters and that idolatry is a great danger that needs to be avoided, and that you should avoid it like the plague. He seems to be saying you can't eat food sacrificed to idols. But then he goes back to this again. All things are lawful. He seems to be quoting what they say, the Corinthians. All things are lawful. We can do whatever we want because we know there's only one God and that the Greek and Roman gods don't exist. But all things are not helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So he's going back to, yes, you can eat food sacrificed to idols if it's sold in the meat market. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If one of the unbelievers invites you to a dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then out of the consideration for the man who informed you and for conscience sake, I mean his conscience, not yours. Do not eat it. It seems to be that Paul's saying, do not go to temples and take part in rituals that involve eating food sacrificed to idols. I think that's what he has in mind when he talks about the table of demons. Do not go to the local sanctuary of Demeter here in Corinth. We actually have it excavated, by the way. Sanctuary of Demeter, which had all kinds of banqueting facilities within it. Perhaps he's saying, do not go to the sanctuary of Demeter and have banquets that involve rituals associated with the god Demeter. However, if you get invited to a friend's house and food sacrificed to idols is there, you're allowed to eat it. As long as no one says, hey, that's food sacrificed to idols, then you're supposed to respect the conscience of that person and not eat it. It's complicated. It's hard to figure out what Paul's view is, but he's emphasizing, though, the dangers of idolatry in the process of talking about this, which is a typical Judean view. Pointing to something else that I want to underline, and that is that here at Corinth, in contrast to Thessalonica, Corinth, there's not a single sign of any tensions between outsiders and Corinthians. Namely, they're being invited to banquets. Followers of Jesus, who are perhaps the wealthier ones, are being invited to banquets with their wealthy friends who have nothing to do with the Jesus movement, who have nothing to do with Judaism, probably. This whole issue of idol meat, eating food sacrificed to idols, fits more with an upper-class context. It's the upper-classes who are getting invited to banquets like Paul is referring to. It's not your average tent maker who works his life out in the marketplace who's getting invited to a big banquet with meat. It's wealthier people in society that are taking part in banquets of that sort. And it's wealthier people in society that are eating meat at all. The standard staple for most people in society in the Roman society is not meat. Meat is a special thing you rarely get to eat unless you're wealthy. You eat bread, salt, and oil. That's your main staple. I like dipping my bread in oil, so it's not too bad. But that's their main staple. You rarely get meat. 
another issue that comes up precisely in context of the letter that some of these Corinthians wrote to him, precisely in the context of people claiming spirit, that they are spiritual. Remember that they claim they're spiritual and therefore they're refraining from sexual activity. Ironically, there seems to be a mix-up here. They're claiming to be spiritual and that therefore they know things and therefore the gods don't exist and that they can eat meat. It's hard to reconcile those two things. But nonetheless, it seems like the same people are doing those two things. And they're claiming spiritual superiority. I, I know things. I am spirit in a spiritual state where I know that that meat doesn't have anything to do with any real gods. I'm in a superior spiritual state. So we're still on those people that have written to Paul. And the next thing that Paul goes on to gives you a glimpse into some other important issues they raise or that he knows about what they're doing. And that is the way in which they're worshiping together. Now we're back to where we left off last time with a series of issues in the section 11 to 14 where it's dealing with worship and what's happening when the Corinthians get together to worship the Judean God. Another example of the social divisions that we've already dealt with, namely the Lord's Supper comes up. Um, and it's that point where uh, Paul's arguing that uh, they need to have a better system in order to have the meal together in remembrance of Jesus and have a system where it doesn't involve some people not getting any food and drink. And that that issue is all related to upper-class people versus lower-class people, as we talked about last time. We then started to get into what Paul calls the spiritual things or it's translated as spiritual gifts quite often in chapter 12 and following. There's several things that we need to point out here in connection with what Paul is characterizing as disorder in the meetings of the Christians at Corinth when they're meeting to worship the Judean God. He's characterizing it as disorder, as further examples of the divisions among them and trying to argue against that, as we'll soon see. In the process, he talks about some of the things that are important to them. The spiritual things, or gifts, are listed in chapter 12, for example, that give us a glimpse into what early Christian worship involved, or at least what roles were taken on by different people when these followers of Jesus gathered together to worship the Judean God. In chapter 12, let me read from 4 to 11. Now, there are varieties of spiritual gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of working, but it is the same God who inspires them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. Here he's going to list different roles he sees as taking place when Jesus' followers worship together. And to another, utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish spirits to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are inspired by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So here we happen to have a list of common roles, common activities that take place when Christians are worshiping. There's Remember that the notion of prophecy within Israelite religion and then within Judean culture uh, is that a prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of God. So God speaks to the prophet, and the prophet tells what God's saying. So this is the notion they have of what prophecy is. So this is part of what goes on when Jesus' followers get together. This idea of spirits being active in making things happen when Jesus' followers are gathered together. The spiritually superior are the ones who are most engaged in this idea of spirits active in making things happen when you gather together. 
And one of the things these people believe at this time uh, happens when spirits are active is that sometimes good spirits or gods can lead someone to speak in what seems to be nonsensical language. The word tongues here. Tongues is just languages. Uh, But what they mean when they say speaking in tongues is speaking in seemingly nonsensical languages. And we have this attested in some of the cults of the Greek world, precisely in Asia Minor. For example, in the worship of Kibbele, it was thought that sometimes the goddess Kibbele, spiritually speaking, would come and possess followers of Kibbele to the point where the followers of Kibbele would be doing seemingly crazy stuff. It's precisely the goddess making this happen. And one of the things that was common in the worship of Kibbele was this babbling, where a god, sure, a god might spiritually make you prophesy. In other words, a god might communicate something And then you will spontaneously, because you're possessed by the God, say what the God is saying. So that's more like prophecy. But we also have attested in the Greek cults this idea of babbling, that the God will possess you to the point where you're just talking nonsense, seemingly. The word that's used quite commonly is enthusiasm. Enthusiasm comes from a Greek word meaning having the spirit in you. You have enthusiasm because the spirit has entered into you or the God has made something, you do something. So this practice of the gods, spiritually speaking, making people do things, and that this being a sign of the power of the God and the need to worship that God. Kibbele's power is shown in the fact that she can make you enthusiastic. And so there's some parallels then between the cultic activity, the rituals and uh, practices of Christians when they gather together and what's going on in the Greco-Roman world. The point of what what I've just said isn't to say it's identical and that someone borrowed something. It's just to say that we're dealing with a common cultural context a common set of assumptions among Greeks and Romans and Christians and Judeans sometimes about what gods do and how gods make worshippers behave. And we're seeing that reflected also within these Jesus followers here at Corinth. Also in chapter 12 at the end, Paul lists further roles that are worth noting because some of them are somewhat different than what we just heard in that previous section. So verse 28 of chapter 12 something to tell you is this. There is no clear authority structure in the Christian communities in the time of Paul. Authority is more along the lines of precisely what we're seeing here. God makes someone do something, or at least that's the belief of the people who are there. God made someone speak in tongues. Well, that person's going to have authority because God is communicating through them. And so authority was more spontaneous, charismatic, you could call it. Charisma is usually the word that's used for this. Uh, Even in sociology, they talk about charismatic leadership developing into institutional leadership gradually within religious movements. And so it's partly because of this stuff in 1 Corinthians that they even have that vocabulary within sociology. But my point is that in the time of Paul, uh, there's a very loose sense of leadership. It's ad hoc. It's sometimes whoever has a home, whoever has money that can supply a place for people to meet will become a leader. But alongside that, is whoever God does stuff through is going to be a leader. You know, it's the belief of the people who are there that God is doing something through someone. Uh, so prophets and, and those who speak in tongues and those who are able to teach, people who have natural abilities or spiritual abilities are the ones who take on leadership roles. And here we're having them listed. So in other words, we don't have listed, and God has appointed bishops, elders, and deacons. No. That's what later becomes the structure of Christianity, leadership-wise. A threefold structure later on, when you get into the second century and on. And I'm in chapter 12, verse 28. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, 
then workers of miracles, then healers, helpers, administrators, speakers in various kinds of tongues. So he's listing again roles. And he's actually giving them a hierarchy to some degree, even though it's not institutional. Speakers in various kinds of tongues, he puts last, precisely because he's been in this whole section dealing with people who think speaking in tongues is the top. These are the spiritual ones from Corinth who have written to him who think of themselves as superior spiritually and they put a high value on speaking in tongues. Chapter 15 is a, seems to be another issue that Paul has heard about probably in their letter to him. But he may have heard about it through other avenues as well. Namely, that the educated Corinthians who wrote the letter, who also think that it's good not to touch a woman, who think that they are highly spiritual that they say there's no such thing as bodily resurrection. Now, you've already learned a little bit about this because you learned about the apocalyptic worldview. Within apocalyptic Judean thought, there's this notion sometimes that there will be a bodily resurrection at the end times. Not all Judeans are apocalyptic at all. Some Judeans do not even think there's such a thing as an afterlife, including the Sadducees. So some Judeans do not even think there's such a thing as an afterlife. That apocalyptic worldview you learned about, not all Judeans think it. But some do, and the ones who do think it, sometimes, some of them, think that there's a bodily resurrection. So that'll give you a little bit of context for the possibility of someone believing in the Judean God and worshiping the Judean God, and yet not believing in such a thing as a bodily resurrection at some future time. We know Paul believes in it because he already talked about it at Thessalonica. So here in chapter 15, he's coping with and trying to counter this belief that some of the Corinthians have that there is no such thing as a bodily resurrection. And he does it in a very complicated way uh, and argues that there's celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies and that the body that is raised is still a physical body and yet it's only a seed of, uh, of what the previous physical body was and it's a transformed physical body. So he's going to get these complicated arguments about how you can have bodily resurrection and not have it a corpse. That's the main thing he's coping with. Because the reason why someone might say there's no such thing as bodily resurrection is because you don't want a corpse. This is the concept uh, highly educated uh, Greeks and Romans in this period might tend towards this view, and that is that the soul within you is the real important aspect of the human being that lives forever. Remember that Plato had that idea, and then it influences all philosophy, and all educated people uh, start to take it on, and it even sifts down and drips down into other segments of society, that idea of a soul being eternal. And so if you believe that the soul is eternal... Generally, the people who think that think that the body is not eternal, that the body is basically a corpse. And sometimes people who think platonically, like Plato does, will actually talk like that. The prison of the body, the soul imprisoned in the body. And so it seems that a particular group of educated Corinthians think like that, think that the body is inferior to the soul or to the spirit, and that they are spiritual beings living a spiritual life, and that they've left the bodily things behind. Remember their asceticism, not engaging in sex. And that they're living spiritual lives that definitely would not be congruent with saying, I'd love to have the prison of the body back. This is the line of thought that's behind their rejection of the idea of the resurrection of bodies in the end times. Paul believes in it. Remember, he's a Pharisee, and the Pharisees believe in resurrection of the dead. That concludes this episode. I hope you'll come again. In the meantime, you can browse my website at philipharlan.com. I like early Christianity.
The introductory music of this podcast is my own remix of Brian Eno and David Byrne's Help Me Somebody from My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, copyright 1981, None Such Records, with an Uzbek vocal sample by Savara Nazarkhan from her song Kunlarim, copyright 2007, Real World Music. Both are used with permission under Creative Commons type licenses.